You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. Well, this morning we're, we're sort of pausing where we were. We were in Luke for a little while. We start a, ne- a new series next week. This morning, we're going to hear a word from God about the centrality of community, the centrality of Christian community in our lives. Um, Before we do, uh, and I can tell you so you can be finding while I I say a a word just by way of clarification uh, to you, but before uh, we jump in, go ahead and be finding 1 John, if you've got your Bibles with you, 1 John chapter 1. It's all the way toward the back. Uh, just before the book of Revelation, 1 John chapter 1. Now, sometimes you have to address things uh, that are a little weird on a Sunday morning when we're all gathered together because in the end, we're a family, right? A church family. So I just need to say this by way of the Ellen Kids area. Uh, for several weeks now, um, someone, many ones, whatever, have left, shall we say, um, a present in the floor of the restrooms. And if that happens to you, right, we're, we're all in different states. Maybe, maybe something's going on downstairs and you need to praise a friend of mine did on a mission trip that the Lord would touch your bowels. Um, it's super helpful if you let someone know, right? If it's embarrassing, you can say you just saw Jake leave the restroom and you think he had an accident. Um, that's what I do when it happens to me. Um, but whether it's a child, hopefully you're checking in on your children, but uh, to, to leave a series of offerings in there to be found by surprise uh, by Julie and then cleaned up while she's donning rubber gloves instead of talking with families and helping them check in at LM Kids is, is hard. So I, I think we're grown up enough there that I don't have to go into any more detail. My wife is already scared to death, pleading with me not to address it. So, But hey, she's not in here yet, I don't think. Maybe she is, so whatever. All right, First uh, John chapter 1, First John chapter 1. Um, let me go ahead and read through this passage, then pray for us, uh, and we'll get into this topic. First John chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. We have proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also, so that also you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the truth as he is in the light, or if we walk in the light, pardon me, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' son purifies us from all sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together underneath your word. 
your authority, your care, your provision. God, as we approach this subject of community in a time and a place in human history where we have more connections than ever before and less genuine community, Father, we are less known maybe than any generations of human beings throughout history. I pray that your spirit would do what I certainly cannot do this morning. Father, that your spirit would convict us of the truth, of the centrality of our relational life together. God, inspire us and challenge us and move us to recommit our lives to Christ-centered community, to doing life in relationship with others in a systematic and organized way. Father, meet us where we are this morning. Where there are wounds, provide healing. Where there's doubt and anxiety, provide peace. Where there's despair, Lord, would you give us hope? Where there's confusion, Father, drive that confusion out with the clarity of truth. I ask confidently in Jesus' name, amen. Next week, many of you know, if you've been paying attention uh, on your half sheets to e-news, to announcements going out here, next week we begin uh, a new phase in our life of the church, kicking off uh, a number of new adult Bible study groups on Sunday morning. We have a, a, a leaders meeting this afternoon from 4 to 6, where about 25 uh, leaders will be gathering as we walk through what uh, this is going to mean for us moving forward as a church and I'll say more about that, but I'm going to challenge you as we go this morning to consider, I'm not going to challenge you to consider, I'm going to challenge you to take the step of saying, I'm going to commit myself to being part of a Bible study group for my, my age range. You can go wherever you want to, right? But they're going to be roughly age graded on Sunday morning. And I know what some of you may be thinking, this sounds suspiciously like Sunday school, and I don't do Sunday school. Well, maybe so but it's not going to be your grandmother's Sunday school, right? So just hear me out this morning and listen to the voice of the Lord as he speaks to us. In 2001, I was a young seminary student, year one, and Sharon and I joined a church named Columbus Avenue Baptist Church in Waco, Texas, where I was going to seminary. Uh, we joined a young, adult, a young adult Bible study group there on Sunday mornings, led by Jerry and Tracy Miller and Larry and Melissa Essery. Now, Jerry and Tracy and Larry and Melissa were ahead of where we were in life, which was quite helpful. Um, and they tag-teamed the teaching and the leading of the group and uh, tag-team having discussions if the group got a little clickish at times. Um, but out of our experience there, we were there uh, for a period of time before I took a ministry position came lifelong friendships, many of them that we still have today. It was a tremendous picture of what these kinds of groups and classes can be in the life of a church. We met together every Sunday, reconnected, talked, taught, listened, learned together. But out of that, connections in the class were made. Out of that, we'd meet up at restaurants, we'd go out to eat, 
We'd go do other things. We'd have men nights. We'd have women's nights. We'd float the river in New Braunfels in Texas. We shared the ups and downs of life. Many of the couples shared, including us, the struggles of infertility. Most in that class, all of us were 20-somethings, married with no kids. Most in there were graduate students at Baylor, either in the business school, the law school, or seminary. And there was something about us gathering underneath the Word of God, being led by two couples who consistently loved on us and taught us and listened to us and cared for us. There's something about gathering in the same stage of life that allowed friendships to flourish much quicker and much more deeply than are often the case, even when we're gathering as Christ-centered people. Many, many years later, and I'll come back to this, those relationships still stand. And it's a picture in my mind of what I hope to see God do here and what he has done here cyclically throughout seasons of our history in the church. As I've been reading through our history, preparing uh, for Vision Night next month, realizing that when you get a church that's just nearly 150 years old, reinventing itself is something that this church has done over and over and over and over, or she would have long been dead. And when you listen to people who came in and they're, they're here 20 years, 25 years, 30 years later, one of the things that I hear them consistently talk about were the classes or groups that they got involved in early and the relationships that they made. This is as God intends it to be. I want us to take a look this morning at the centrality of community. And I want to go ahead and give you my outline so it's in your, your brain a bit and we can rest and, and move through this together. I simply want to show you three things demonstrating from Scripture that the centrality of community is rooted in the triune nature of God himself. First of all, the centrality of community, your need for it, God's design for it, his command of it is rooted in his own triune nature. Second, it is ordained by God for all believers, not for extroverts, not for people who, who uh, love to be surrounded by people and engage in relationships, but for all believers. And finally, it is evangelistic in its impact. It's evangelistic in its impact. Let's uh, begin with, with the first one, looking at its rootedness in the triune nature of God himself. Let's go back to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 will, will be the foundation, though we'll look at other passages as we go. Look down at verse 3 again in 1 John chapter 1. John says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. And listen why he says he does that. He doesn't say that you might be saved. He doesn't say that you might be redeemed. He doesn't say that you might avoid the coming wrath of God for all who disbelieve. He says, so that you may have fellowship with us. Of all the things he could have said on the other end of, we, pro we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. What John is saying is we proclaim to you the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus Christ so that. How many of you would have chosen or would have imagined, John would say, so that you might have fellowship with us? I certainly would not have. But John understands the absolute divine centrality 
of our life together as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says, we proclaim to you the gospel so that you might have fellowship with us. You might be drawn into the relational life that we share with one another under the lordship of Christ. Because you can't really participate in it without the redeeming work of God. You can come around, you can, you can serve, you can do all kinds of things. But at the essence of what we experience together and what God has ordained for us to experience is something that simply can't be gotten at apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. He goes on. This is the message we've heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. We lie and do not live out the truth. Now look at verse 7 carefully. But if we walk in the light, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, anybody else remembering an old DC Talk song? You are in the light. I'm not going to sing it, but I would like to. He is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. You see here at least... Uh, the first and second part of, part of, uh, persons of the triune God at work. And you see in John's understanding of the gospel, no separation between men and women being redeemed and men and women being united to one another. United to God in redemption, united to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. If we walk in the light and he is in the light, we have fellowship. You would think John would say here, we have fellowship with God. That's what I would anticipate. They would say, we have fellowship with God, but he doesn't. He says, if we walk in the light, if we walk in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. It makes you wonder if we discount fellowship with one another, if we actually are walking in the light, as he is in the light. If we're actually living in the light, as he is in the light. If it's very easy for us simply to come to church on Sunday morning and leave and never be involved in a consistent, committed, relational level with people outside of here. He says, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. John doesn't just connect justification with our fellowship to one another, our koinonia, this unique relationship, partnership, sharing in, participation in the life of God with one another. He doesn't just tie it to our justification. He ties it to our sanctification. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son purifies us from all sin. Because when we're walking closely, you're going to have someone come up to you and say, you're a little rough around these edges. What's up today? You know, Did you take a, 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 a pocket full of grumpy pills this morning? God's designed it that way. If you look back at John's gospel, at the gospel of John, where the triune nature of God comes out so strong in Jesus' 
teaching and priestly prayer before his arrest and crucifixion. John chapter 16, verses 13 through 15, John says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, speaking about the Holy Spirit that's going to come as Jesus ascends, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, that is, the, the Holy Spirit will glorify me, the Son, because it is from me, the Son, that he, the Spirit, will receive what he will make known to you, the saints. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me, the Son, what he, the Spirit, will make known to you, the saints. Do you, do you see that what, what C.S. Lewis would call the Trinitarian dance there? The beautiful reality that God is not and never has been static. That he's living, loving, active, and moving all the time. That There's this beautiful movement and dance of relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit as each is doing their part in redemption and sanctification, as each is glorifying the other, lifting the other up, doing the work and the will of the other. This is why we're so drawn to relationship. This is why, again, loneliness is such a particular kind of pain. John 17, if you turn over one chapter, verses 4 and 5, I have brought you glory, Jesus says on earth, by finishing the work you have gave me to do. He says, I, Father, as the Son, have finished the work you gave me to do, so glorifying you. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus giving a nod to the, the Trinitarian beauty and glory and relationship that was there from all Eternity, you'll go back. This won't be on the screens, but if you've got your Bibles open, you can turn back to the very end of John 15, verses 26 and 27. When the Advocate, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. He's going out from the Father, but the Holy Spirit's testifying about Jesus, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. The centrality of community is absolutely rooted in the triune nature of God. We are created to be in relationship with one another, in significant relationship with one another. Relationships of mutual submission and delight and sacrifice and service. Alistair Begg said this about this idea of Christian fellowship. People who once were diverse and disunited now share with one another because they share something together. It is not merely that they share the same direction or the same desires or the same needs, but it is that they share in a common participation in the grace of God, the salvation of Christ, and in the blessings of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand? Do you hear Begg's understanding theologically? of how rooted in God's triune nature our Christian fellowship, our relational community is, this is the ground of Christian fellowship. But the centrality of community is also ordained by God for all 
believers. For all believers, because it flows from the fullness of who he is. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter if you're a man, if you're a woman. It doesn't matter your vocation, your education level. It doesn't matter if you're more introverted, more extroverted. It is central to God's design for human beings, for the church, and for his redemptive purposes that we are united to one another systematically and consistently in Christ-centered relationships. Let me turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 22. Now, I wish we had time to really work through this and unpack it because it's a, a great theologically dense passage. We don't. Um, so we'll kind of hit it at a surface level. But Paul says here to the church in Ephesus, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 2 in Ephesus, for he himself is our peace. It's a powerful statement. Jesus doesn't just give you peace. He is your peace. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups. In other words, historically, the world has been divided into two great groups of enmity, Jews and Gentiles, from the calling of Abraham and the covenant relationship that God created with him and his descendants, there's been this great divide that Christ just absolutely shattered. Who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. See, regardless of what's going on in the Middle East now, regardless of what you think when it comes to Jew, Gentile, Israel, and the nations, what Paul says here in Scripture is that Jesus has already destroyed the barrier between them, the dividing wall of hostility. He settled it in his own flesh as he absorbed the judgment and the wrath of God for all humankind. For a nation who continued to fail to be a light to the nations. And then this great statement, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. That means I'm a white male, but I am not first a white male. I'm a Christian. I'm a husband and a father, but I'm not first a husband and a father. I'm a Christian. I'm an American by birth, by citizenship, but I am not first an American. I am first a follower of Jesus Christ, which means I have more in common and more in relation with another follower of Christ who's a Chinese national or an Iranian national or a Russian national than I do with an American who refuses the name of Christ. One new humanity. Now, don't miss the plural nature of all that Paul is talking about here. What he's saying here, and I would defend this, you can differ with me, and we can talk about it. But what Paul is saying here, and we see throughout Scripture, is that God's primary, not only, but his primary purpose in redemption was not the salvation of individual lives, but the creation of a people for the glory of his name. A people 
with whom he could dwell again freely as he did in the garden, in the new heavens and new earth, as Jerusalem comes down to heaven, the new city of God, the kingdom of God. Thus making peace, verse 16, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. What Paul is saying here is whatever divides us, the largest thing that could divide human creation historically, Jesus has already shattered. So it is to God's glory and to the praise of his name that his people gather in littler groups as well, where you come in and you go, no, I don't understand how this group, why this group gels. And you go, well, we wouldn't. In fact, we wouldn't even choose one another if it wasn't for Jesus. Jesus draws us together. I mean, tell me you wouldn't look around at this church or any church where God has placed you and say, this isn't all the actual individuals I would have chosen. I would have chosen some others. I would have chosen two billionaires to tithe and a hundred Bethys to be greeters. If you don't know Bethy, you're just missing out on one of life's little treasures. Yeah, this is always the case. Verse 19, Paul goes on, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers. Now listen to this. He doesn't just say, but citizens with God's people. He says, but fellow citizens. Everything Paul is saying here is to you all, to y'all, to you guys. He's speaking to a people, to a redeemed people, the church in Ephesus, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That you, Umes, there is plural. It's plural. In him, you all, y'all too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We need one another, and we need to commit to one another, right? We're, can I just get this out of the way? We're all busy. We're all busy. We're busy living. We're busy dying. We're busy with jobs. We're busy trying to raise kids. We're busy trying to care for aging parents. We're all busy. We're all busy. Rosaria Butterfield, in The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, as God was moving in his spirit to redeem her as a radically unbelieving adult woman, living happily and joyfully in a lesbian relationship, teaching women's studies at a public university in the East, says this as, as she was being moved around by the spirit. I was so tossed about by what I was hearing that I learned, in spite of my pride, to pray. Now, I want any of you that work with LM Kids, any of you that teach, any of you that lead, any of you who are families with children responsible for God to have them united in church consistently to listen to this. I'd been raised in the Catholic Church, and in spite of myself, I started to recall teachings 
and sensibilities that had once organized my childhood faith. I even started to bring to mind the Lord's Prayer. I would say to Rosaria, and I think she would say today, it wasn't she bringing this to mind. It was God's redeeming spirit at work in her life. I even started to bring to mind the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed. Prayers and creeds that Catholics learn by heart and recite, recite each Sunday. Being present as a family in the full life of the church matters. I thought when I read this about all of you who are investing in LM Kids, Bethany, I thought particularly about you because of your just rock star consistency back there and faithfulness and the differences made in the lives of our twins. Um, you don't know what seeds you're planting and when God chooses to water them and to cause them to bloom. Parents, you have a God-given obligation to be here, to be here with your kids and to not say something silly like, well, my parents made me go to church and I hated it and didn't go to for 10 years then. That doesn't matter. It doesn't absolve you of your obligation, your, your obligation before the Lord. Yesterday we had a, a great group of uh, mostly men, some ladies out here working on the front of the building. It looks way better, doesn't it? Holy smokes. It looks way better. I love seeing the Hintons. The whole clan was here. Mom, dad, kids out there sweating, stuff dripping off. I was afraid some, some guys were going to drop, but you didn't. Tony, thank you for that. The rest of you guys, thank you for showing up. It makes a, a big difference. I, it, was so, it was such a blessing to my heart to see the Hintons here with their kids all working together. Sinclair Ferguson, Scottish theologian, professor of systematic theology and longtime pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina, who's since semi-retired. This is how I want to retire. He's semi-retired, moved back to Scotland as a teaching uh, preacher at a church there while still teaching systematic theology. That's the way you retire. He says in his great little book, Devoted to God's Church, for Christians, the church is central. Let me ask you, just, let me just pause. I don't think most of us believe that. I know statistically most American Christians do not believe that. We believe the church is optional. We, we have this highly fraudulent and a biblical view of salvation as being a wholly individual thing. And we see the church and certainly discipleship as, as options, selections on a buffet. For Christians, the church is central. It is not an added extra, the icing on the cake of a good life well lived. Rather, our life in the church lends its atmosphere. In other words, our life in the church provides uh, impact and influence and movement to our social life. It energizes us in our vocational life to be salt and light in the world. This is, how, this is, this is God's plan for outreach. It's, we gather every Sunday and then we outreach through the week. There's a natural spreading of you guys all throughout this community, all the way into downtown Atlanta and around. As God has placed you in different vocations in different neighborhoods, giving you passions for different hobbies and different gifts, relational connections with different people at different times. It energizes us in our vocational life to be salt and light in the world, and it is a basic dimension of, not merely an add-on to, our family life. This is where uh, Ferguson is addressing the life of the nuclear family, the immediate family with the life of the church. He goes on and says, my family needs the church family for its own growth 
and health. Can I just say that for me? My kids need, my kids need Bethany and Becky and Rhonda and the others that invest in them and Ellen kids. My teenagers need David Conley and the other adults that work with our students. Sometimes we, we plead with them to go see y'all. Please go. Please go to the Conleys. I'm sure they have an open door policy. We feel like they are just the people to help you with this particular issue. My family needs the church family for its own growth and health. Now listen to this. No single family possesses all the resources it needs to be a truly and fully Christian family. Can any of you who've, who've wrestled with life just say amen to that? This is biblical truth Ferguson is getting at. We need support, friendship, example, wise counsel, and much else from the church family. Two Christian parents are not in themselves adequate to rear one child for Christ. I love that. And it's an absolutely biblical idea. When you look at the instruction given to the Christian family in Ephesians 5, it's centered in between and all in the middle of Paul's teaching about our life in the local church together. Ferguson goes on and says, they were never meant to. Two Christian parents alone were never meant to be adequate to raise one child for Christ. So the resources of our own family, no matter how wonderful, are scarcely adequate. We, and perhaps especially our children, need the church. In that context, we will be blessed beyond our expectation. He tells the story of um, his son coming to visit them uh, in South Carolina. And after the service, he sat for a long, long time and talked to one of the, the oldest members of the church, uh, a single lady in their church. And Sinclair said he was, he was kind of interested. He said that woman had always loved his son and invested in him as he was growing up, but said she was a, a poor widow woman in the church who lived off of Social Security. So I mean, his son um, was an up-and-coming surgeon who made great money, extremely well-educated. He said on the face of it, from a worldly standard, they wouldn't have anything to talk about for a long period of time. He was less than half her age. They moved in different social circles. But... And she came up to uh, Sinclair Ferguson after the service, after everything was done, and just said how delighted she was to see him and how meaningful it was for him to come back and talk to her. And Ferguson said it was, he was, it was such a delight for him as a father um, to not only look on as a pastor at the beauty of the church, but as a father at a son who had been nurtured and cared for by his church. As he grew up, he said, following that, he said, it is in the context of such blessings that we need to learn to ask, and I want, I want everyone to listen to me here, that we need to learn to ask not how is church life to be fitted into my plans for myself and my family, but how do we fold our lives into the life of the church? Because this is, is now and is going to continue to be one of the most distinguishing characteristics of true committed followers of Jesus in our day in a way that it wasn't in the past because everything in the world wasn't offered all week long. I mean, as, 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 as soon back, I don't know if that's a phrase, but as near forward something, when I was growing up, 80s, 90s, that was not a thing. That was not a thing. You'd have to work to find something interesting for your family to do on Sundays. 
But now the world holds everything out on the day that the Lord calls his and puts it before us. What's, what's first? What's first? What's going to be your priority? That's part of why we're starting this new series, False, False Faith, next week so that we can slowly, systematically push back on the individualized gospel that we've grown accustomed to and are comfortable with, which bears no fruit, costs no sacrifice, and results in no change. And yet we say, but I prayed a prayer when I was nine, and they dunked me. Therefore, I'm good. Last one. The centrality of community is central, or the centrality of community is evangelistic in its impact. It's evangelistic in its impact. Let me show you what I mean by that from Acts chapter 2, a passage that will be familiar to many of you this morning. Starting in verse 36, uh, Peter's giving the first Christian sermon, and he says, therefore, in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And this is, this is a phrase denoting uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. A Holy Spirit produced plea of despair and said, Peter, said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. I just want to point out to you again the triune nature of Peter's answer to their question. You see Jesus Christ in verse 38, the Holy Spirit in verse 38, the Lord our God in verse 39. Skip down to verse 42. Lord adds to their numbers... 3,000 are added. Verse 42, they devote themselves. They devoted themselves. In other words, there was a, an immediate change. There was an immediate change. Their priority changed. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, koinonia, the unique relational context of Christian friendship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, this is not communism. This is not socialism or fascism. Those things have been tried and always found wanting because they exist in an atmosphere of coercion, what will be taken from you. This was voluntary, infrequent, and needs-based. If you look at the early chapters of Acts put together. But something had changed. Something had changed in the verse 45. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. So there were large public gatherings. There were small, more intimate gatherings in homes. And ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Obviously, there's, there's some contextualized stuff here. They obviously live close enough to one another, all in the same city, Jerusalem, to, to have this kind of day-in and day-out interaction. But they're setting a pattern that all scholars have recognized historically, all pastors, all 
spirit-led believers as the pattern for our life together as followers of Jesus. And in them simply being and doing what God's called them to be and to do in the relational context of their life together, men and women are saved. Men and women are added to this. Craig Bartholomew and Michael Goheen say in the drama of Scripture about these early chapters of Genesis, or early chapters of Acts, I'm sorry. Gentiles fascinated by the salvation visible in Israel are driven of their own accord to the people of God. They do not become believers as a result of missionary activity. Rather, the fascination emitted by the people of God draws them in. There's life. Uh, the life of the believing community radiates the life of the kingdom and thus draws people from darkness. Now, they're not saying there's not missionary activity. We go on to see that. But there's initial missionary activity, and then churches are born, and it's in the, the life and the context of the relational life of the church as a witnessing light before a community, as an alternative culture, that draws men and women in evangelistically, and they are saved and they are discipled, and they're sanctified. Part of the reason we encourage you to invite people to come see Jesus Revolution is not because they can't watch it on Netflix at home alone like we all do and God intends, sitting on the couch eating pizza and chasing it down with ice cream. That may just be me. But because when people come in and get to see and participate in something like that, God does things in their hearts and minds as they're watching how we relate to one another. And they say, man, this is a different kind of community. This is a different kind of place. And God begins working in their hearts and in their minds. Church is a family always expecting guests. And my hope and my consistent prayer leading in Friday night is that in many of our hearts, there's a kind of a new ignition of love for people far from God and for his church as we watch Jesus' revolution together. Across the years, that initial class that Sharon and I were part of continues to bear friendship and fruit in my life. I know when I went back to Baylor as a doctoral student, um, there was a kind of a little lot we could park on for free. It was kind of like, you know, you don't say anything about it and they don't say anything about it and we just pretend like it isn't happening. Um, uh, and then they built something on the lot and ruined everyone's life. And then I was struggling. I was having some issues with getting my car registered because the way that doctoral students did it was a little bit different. And one of my buddies said, hey, you remember Matt Penny, right? I'm like, yeah, from our, uh, our group at uh, Columbus Avenue. He said, yeah, Matt Penny is the director of parking and transportation at Baylor now. Just give him a text. Just give him a text. So I shot Matt a text. And he said, hey, what's your license plate number? I was like, blah, blah, blah. And he said, all right, you're in the system now. You're good. Just park where you want. Yes. Right? This is 20 years after that class. After that group of young adults doing life together outside of Sunday morning. But the initial connections happening there Sunday morning, week in and week out, week in and week out. I stayed through all my two-week seminars, doctoral seminars in Waco at the house of Chad Latino, a good friend of mine who's a dentist, owns his practice there now, has a little pool house out there. He and his wife, we met in that class. Got to be lifelong friends. This is God's plan. It's not that in sitting in a classroom, sitting in a group on Sunday morning, you're going to become best friends there. It's that God, through his spirit, is going to unite your heart with someone else. Your affinities, your affirmations, your hobbies, your personalities. And outside of there, you begin doing life together. You begin doing life together. Greg Allison 
said in his book, Sojourners and Strangers on the Doctrine of the Church, when the church as covenant community fosters life together among its members, it contributes to their development as holy, devoted, and fully formed disciples of Jesus Christ. Such a great statement. Such a great statement. What I want to do now is challenge all of you who are present. If you don't already attend one of the Bible study groups on Sunday morning at 9.15, and I know that's early for lazy people, and, and I don't want any language back from parents. I, I got kids. I know how early those suckers are up. They're not waiting on, uh, or we're not waiting on them to leave. We could make a 6.30 class. They're, they're waiting on us to leave. It ought to cost you a little something. I'll say that with no apologies. I hope it's a little inconvenient on you. I hope it's a little uncomfortable. Because that's what God's called you to. That's what it means to follow a crucified Savior. Maybe we could think about setting aside our convenience a little while and make a commitment. And I want to challenge you and call you to that this morning. We're going to have a new group for the 20s, a new group for 30s and 40s, 50s and 60s, 70s and up. Now, obviously, if, you, you know, if you're like, hey, I'm you know, 69, can I go to the 70s group? I like them better. Do what you want, Right? Do what you want. We, we mix all kinds of ages on Wednesday night at Elm Institute, and it's such a beautiful thing to see uh, the intergenerational nature of people around tables sharing what they read and asking questions. But we need a place in this church to help facilitate the relational connection of, of guests and of new people that God's bringing in. And this is it. This is going to be the next step for everybody coming in. And it's on your shoulders to build those classes so that when guests, because guests will come in and ask us, hey, is there a place for me? We want to be able to say absolutely. But that's dependent on enough 20s making the 20s class. Enough 30s and 40s making the 30s and 40s. And some of you will serve. Some be there when you're not serving. You're like, well, my spouse, you know, polishes the piano every Sunday morning during that hour. Well, come anyway. Let your spouse polish the piano and you go to your Bible study. All of them will be going through the same thing, the Gospel Project curriculum. From birth to heaven bound, we're all covering the same curriculum. A Christ-centered, chronological journey through Scripture every three years, taking us from Genesis through Revelation. Raising both the unity of the church and as they bring to light 99 core doctrines of Christian faith, our theological formation, our love for one another. Do, do this for me. Grab the connection cards that are in your seats. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you're, if you're willing to be a, a committed member of one of those groups starting them next Sunday at 9.15, say, hey, count me in. And our, our leaders are already going to be preparing this afternoon. We're asking one-year commitments from them year by year by year. Um, would you simply write on your connection card somewhere, front or back, just write, I'm in. I'm in. I'll be here. There's a place for my kids. There's a place for whatever. I'm in. When I'm not serving, whatever, I'm there. We're going to pray for you, encourage you, reach out to you. We're going to continue reaching out in the coming weeks. Let's, 
Let's pray. While I pray, our offering officers will make their way to their positions. Father, move and stir in our hearts. God, quite frankly, we need to be inconvenienced. Father, that is so often the test of our genuine faith in you is are we willing to be inconvenienced for your glory, for your purposes, for the ministry of your church. God, move and stir in the hearts of everyone in this room right now. God, as we prepare to receive offering, God, as, as, as those in this room prepare to drop in their connection cards in those buckets, many with a new commitments to, to be together and together relationally on Sunday mornings, trusting you to form friendships that lead to doing life beyond that. God, we acknowledge it's a holy and it's a sacred moment when we recommit ourselves to you. God, take all the commitments that are made. Take everything that's given this morning, God, and those who've given throughout the week. God, use the commitments. Use the financial support for your glory, for your goodness. Bless all who are leaning into you, Lord Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lnbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.